Economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Okay, so today we have uh, Dr. P.J. Hill. Dr. Hill is a professor of economics emeritus at Wheaton College in Wheaton, Illinois, uh, and a senior fellow at the Property and Environment Research Center in Bozeman, Montana, where he currently resides. Uh, Dr. Hill is the co-author of uh, several books with uh, Terry L. Anderson and Douglas North, a book called Growth and Welfare in the American Past, um, another book with Terry Anderson called The Birth of a Transfer Society, and also with Terry Anderson for The Not-So-Wild Wild West, Property Rights on the Frontier. And what I wanted to do was to talk to Dr. Hill about the idea of stewardship as a Christian or religious concept um, and its relation to environmental preservation or environmental stewardship, maybe. But just to get a handle on how this, how these things all come about, um, Dr. Hill, could you tell us something about environmental economics? I think most people, you know, when they think of economics, they think of basically financial concepts, you know, money and, and Wall Street bankers and that kind of thing. What is environmental economics and how, uh, how does economics help us understand environmental problems? I think economics is very helpful in terms of the environment, particularly in terms of trade-offs. One of the major features of economics is it helps us understand trade-offs. And when we come to the environment, a lot of things we want from the environment, we also want production, we want labor, uh, how people can be cared for. Uh, and applying the discipline of economics to that really helps us to think seriously about a couple of issues. One is information. How do people get good information in order to make good environmental decisions? And then the second one would be incentives. And so in some sense, you could say that economics is really the study of information and incentives. And we're just we're applying that concept or those issues to questions of the environment. There's the questions of how do we produce good things in the environment in terms of clean air, uh, those sorts of things. The other thing you could say is how do we manage the sludge, some of the things that aren't so pleasant, and how, how do we deal with those? So I think economics is a useful discipline. As you said, though, uh, it's a little different in that sometimes many of the things don't have a direct monetary price on them. So that means we have to use our concepts to try to figure out, okay, how are we going to make these trade-offs for both goods that are priced and sometimes for things that are not priced? I think the, the public good aspect is pretty important to uh, bring into that on the valuation of those trade-offs, right? And that's what you were kind of saying, that that's more of an art form than a science in some cases. Yes, it is. There's a lot of things we want in the environment. And the reason we have environmental problems oftentimes is because the institutional framework isn't complete or doesn't help us deal with it in we, the way we would say with wheat or cars or things like that. So it's useful to think about what sorts of institutions would be helpful in trying to give us both the information and the incentives. So then one of the things you've written about a lot in your, in, in your career is, is the, this issue of property rights and how that has, has, it plays an important role in all of this. What are your thoughts on the use of property rights to deal with environmental problems and maybe the limitations of uh, the use of property rights to 
you know, to maybe allocate these scarce resources using prices if, if we can? What, what are the limitations there? Yeah. Well, to start with, I would say that almost all environmental issues are property rights issues because the property rights tell you what sorts of actions you can take, what rewards you can capture, what the costs are that you bear for doing certain sorts of things. So that's the property rights framework. So I would say environmental issues are oftentimes property rights problems with you, with uh, wood, or even property rights issues because when somebody puts into the air and somebody else says, I don't like it, it's you're putting stuff in my air, they're making a property rights claim. They're saying, you don't have the property right to do that. On the other hand, the person putting the effluent in the air is saying, well, I do have the right. I'm doing it. So many times we have to then go into that sort of a situation and say, well, what can we do to better clarify those property rights? Sometimes it's just clarifying them. Sometimes it's creating new property rights. Sometimes it's trying to mimic property rights. It's trying to create uh, some information and incentives that would try to get us closer to a property rights framework. So that's where I see property rights as kind of the, the baseline for helping us to think about environmental issues. So I have a question. And when I teach my environmental ethics class, one of the concepts that comes up is the tragedy of the commons. And I know you've written about the tragedy of the commons, and I think it might be a good jumping off place to talk about maybe where institutional problems can affect the use of a resource. So I was wondering if you would kind of give a short explanation of what a tragedy of the commons is for anyone who doesn't understand, and then maybe talk a little bit about how markets might, when they can, alleviate that kind of problem. Yeah, basically, a tragedy of the commons is a property rights problem. It's when many users can use, a, can use a resource, but they can't restrict other people from it. So I can capture the benefit of a resource, but other people can also. The problem is without uh, my ability to exclude other people, I will oh, probably overuse it because let's say that we're looking at fish. Uh, I might want the fish to mature and catch them when they get bigger. But if I wait, Maybe I won't be the one to catch the fish. Maybe the other 30 people that are fishing will get it. And so I will, I will speed up my rate, rate, rate of use of that resource. So that means that whenever there's resources without what we would call well-defined and enforced property rights, you do end up with a tragedy of the commons and the resource will be overused. We can go back to fisheries. There's been some pretty helpful and interesting work there in terms of institutional change. The U.S., New Zealand, Australia, Iceland have gone with a kind of a mandated quota, if you will, a fishing quota that we call them ITQs, individual transferable quotas, or a catch limit. So, for instance, take the halibut fishery off of Alaska. Uh, it was overexploited, and they kept trying to control it by cutting the uh, season down to keep people from overfishing it. People would use larger and larger boats and race out to try to get the fish. They would cut the season down. They finally got down to two 12-hour days during the whole halibut season that you could fish. And, of course, it was still people were still using wow to try to get it. So then they went with these individual transferable quotas. And an individual transferable quota is basically a percentage of the allowable catch. Now, you have to have a mechanism for deciding how many fish can you take out per year and still sustain yield. So that's one of the things you have to do, that it can either be done by the group of fishers or it can be done by a government agency. Sometimes it can change over time as you get more data about what is sustainable. 
but your ITQ is usually expressed in terms of a percentage. A person might have 2% of the allowable catch from the halibut fishery in Alaska. That's transferable. The person can transfer it to other people if they think they can use it better. Uh, and then generally in that sort of a case, you can fish for like eight months out of the year. So you can choose when you want to go. Uh, it works very well in terms of deciding. And every year there is a published quota and your percentages in terms of that quota. Oh, that's interesting. So I, I love these fishing examples, by the way, because I'm a fisherman. It, the quota itself is a, expressed as a percent. So if you own 2%, you can sell 1% and keep 1% for yourself. Or what's the increments? Is that how it works? Each, each one, there's, there's kind of a certain amount that makes it, you know, that just in terms of kind of lumpiness, but you can, you can sell 2%, you can sell a half a percent, you can rent it out. Uh, right. Some fish, you know, will rent it, will rent out their quarter to somebody else. Right. There's been big decrease in the amount of, of fishing stock. And one of the other interesting things is that halibut fishing is long line fishing. You uh, lay out these long, uh, fish lines that are baited at regular interviews, when you could only fish one or two days out of the year uh, and your long line got tangled, say you had two or three long lines out of your halibut boat, if one of those got tangled, you certainly didn't have time to reel it in, to untangle it, and then to put it back out. So you got out of knacks and you started stopping it. So we ended up with long lines floating around. They were still catching fish. Fish were still dying. But they never made it to market. And now... Uh, that people have a long period of time to fish. There's not. It's much more sa- it's safer for one thing. But you don't have to rush to try to do it. So you get. You just get a lot better use of the resource, and that's a property rights solution. Takes some, you know, some innovation. Takes a little bit of work. It means that you have to try to figure out what the allowable catch is. You have to figure out a way for assigning that quota. It's usually been done on the basis of historical catch. The people that were in that particular fishery get that percentage. That can be somewhat political at times. You know, who gets it? All of those sorts of issues. But it has been very, very helpful in terms of reducing or taking away what we talk about as the tragedy of the cop. But the only way new entrants into the market, they have to buy the existing quota batches then, right? Because 100% have been allocated into private hands and they maintain those rights so long as maybe they don't get busted cheating on the system or something i suppose they could lose yeah, their that's correct it, it, that it is it is a limit in terms of the number of people where people can enter it's kind of like owning uh, land in kansas the only way you can you know, produce wheat is get more you know is to buy land that already exists i mean you, know, yeah. you could say well why can't i raise wheat well there's a limited amount of land in the same way there's a limited amount of fish that can be taken out of the halibut fishery in alaska so it's not different in a lot of ways. What's really different is it does take some intervention at some point, either a government intervention or by the existing fishers deciding to form a pool or a, an arrangement, which, and, it, and then it have, they have to have the power of exclusion. Some people don't like they have to be able to exclude people who uh, don't have that sort of right. Because uh, otherwise, if you don't, then you're back to the tragedy of the commons. Well, so I think to kind of summarize some of that, so I, th- I think the, the interesting thing about it is that we actually like, uh, well, maybe not like, but it's much easier for us to deal with situations where we have private goods that are excludable, right? So if I, if I have a, a bushel of wheat, you can't have that same bushel of wheat just by nature. Well, I guess that's uh, non-rivalry in consumption, but, but it's excludable in the sense that if I buy it, then 
there, there's a way for me to allocate it very easily with property rights, but we're talking about situations, environmental type situations, I guess is the category we put these under where common pool resources or public goods where we're not able to, I mean, we don't just run into that same situation naturally. And so we kind of have to create that same type of situation um, with laws and stuff like that. And that's maybe where the tension is politically is that people don't, people don't like the fact that you're putting these parameters around their behavior in that market. They don't like that you're restricting the amount they can catch or something like that. But the point is that, that that serves a purpose. And so I think maybe that's a good place to stop. And I think on the other half here, maybe what we'll get into is talking about the stewardship aspect of this. And, you know, given that we have to have some kind of wisdom about how to set limits on things. Yeah, these, doesn't the Bible say we ought to share everything? Well, you know, I think since we have to <laughs> set limits on these public goods, you know, maybe we need to have some kind of wisdom about how to do that. And I think maybe that's where some some more of your expertise can come in and help us understand that. So okay. with that, we'll take a break. By 2030, the Gortney Institute will be known for its alumni supporters and participants who incorporate economic understanding with their faith and their careers, vocations, communities, and personal lives. The Institute will be a nationally recognized source for knowledge and contributions to student experience, society's understanding of private and public solutions to poverty, and the overlap of markets, governance, and faith. Young audiences will look to the Institute for challenging and engaging education on faith and economics. Please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. If you use iTunes, please consider giving us a five-star review. It helps other people find us. We'd like to do a mailbag episode, so please send your questions to info at gortneyinstitute.org. Please visit our website at 123povertysucks.org. There you will find our events, blog, and our swag shop. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at 123povertysucks or on Facebook at Gortney Institute for updates on our activities and research. Okay, great. So back to talk with Dr. Hill a little more about environmental stewardship now. So maybe you can help us understand sort of from a Christian perspective, how we understand environmental stewardship and maybe how economics can, can fit into that. Certainly. Well, I think for any Christian, it really starts with the whole creation mandate. God created the world. He created humans in his image, and then he gave authority over creation for humans to steward it and to use it for the goodness of humankind and all of the creatures within. So we, you know, we can go to Genesis 128 where it talks about be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Of course, then if we go to Genesis 2, we see Adam and Eve in the garden, and there they're commanded to work it and to keep it. But then there's the fall, and that affects all of creation. Enter thorns and thistles, right? 
Right, there's thorns and thistles. And you, brought, you bring up an interesting point because people talk quite a bit, some about the fall and how that affects humankind's relationship uh, with God. But we also remember that there is a curse, which is God's reaction to the fall, that the earth is cursed. So there's thorns and thistles. And so what that really means, I think, is that the world needs to be subdued. We have to be a little careful with that term uh, because it doesn't mean we can do what we please with it. Uh, you may say it, it's a pastoral relationship. There's, you know, we need to have tender mercies. God still values it. But one of the things that come out of this is that humankind has been given a particularly responsible privilege. That's in contrast to what I would call the biocentric philosophy, because biocentrism says that all of nature is of equal value and there's nothing particularly special about humankind. The Christian perspective says, mm -hmm. no, we have particular moral uh, responsibilities to reverse the effects of the fall. So that's basically, we should be about doing those sorts of things. That doesn't give us completely direct pat answers. It doesn't tell us if we should or shouldn't drill for oil or plant wheat or use fertilizer on wheat or irrigate our wheat. It does mean we are active, caring agents of change. and We need to be informed, need to be useful. I would say that quite a bit of that is what I would call prudential. That it's not, or, or quite a bit of our actions, we, we act with the knowledge and wisdom that God has given us, we have to refine it, but quite a bit of environmental stewardship, we know what our total responsibility is, but we're not going to get these you know, exact answers as to what we need to do. So there we have to go back and we have to think, and that's where I use my think about information to try to bring people on board in terms of thinking about caring for and then using the environment. Yeah, so be fruitful, multiply, 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 multiply. I'm thinking fertilizer. I think that's uh, clearly a fertilizer mandate by God, but I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm reading too much into it. Well, we <laughs> need to remember that the earth under the curse, originally under the curse, could not support a lot of people. And the fact that now we can support you know, 7 billion people, that's a pretty big thing. Did that by interacting with the earth, with what God has given us. And so I consider that to be part of the good work of humankind. One of the things that uh, does come out of at least my thinking about uh, the creation mandate is that we are to be active agents. And there is this line that nature knows best, or if we just left things, just leave things alone. Uh, the problem, there is this kind of this feeling in some environmental issues, come out clearly by. Mm -hmm many other secular environmentalists, environmentalists, but for some, they see humans as the curse of the earth, that everything we look at that's a problem, it's because of human intervention. The Christian perspective says humans have been problematic in a lot of areas, done some bad things with regard to what God has given us, but it doesn't start with that premise that if we just left things alone, they would return to some sort of balance of nature, that would take us to the place where we could just minimize or get rid of human human influence. Yeah, no, I, I think that's an interesting <laughs> comment, a philosophical comment of sorts. <laughs> I was just pointing over to Justin since he's here, but uh, yeah, no, I, I think 
That's true. And, and, and I think that's what people criticize Christians on in some cases, too, is to say, oh, the Bible tells you that you get to do whatever you want with the earth because you own it or whatever. And, and uh, that's why we got all these problems we do today. We are acting as stewards for God, which means there can be property rights. In in a sense, there are, you know it's it's okay for humans to own, but we're really just acting on the behalf of God. We're never the ultimate owners, so, so that ownership of a part has to always be kept in terms of perspective. And then, since we're not the ultimate owners, that means we have to be responsible. We have to think carefully about how we use the environment. And again, that's when, when I start thinking prudentially about those sorts of things, then that's where I think about property rights, because that's what does generate information and incentives. And if they're lacking, then we try to create something that looks like, you know, that's uh, quasi-property rights in order to generate the right information and incentives. So I have a question related to that with, as you were talking about, you know, we're just, we're just being stewards and it's not ultimately, uh, you know, ours to completely you know, destroy or whatever. I, I wonder about, you know, some of these environmental tensions that we have. So, you know, Russ was mentioning fertilizer and, and increasing production and stuff like that. And of course, modern fertilizers allow us to use less land. So put that aside and, and just think we, we have other environmental goods besides, you know, just sort of their cultivation for food or something like that. We have people talk about scenic views or just, um, you know, relatively untouched parts of uh, you know, we have national parks and stuff like that, especially where you live in the Western U.S. And so it, it reminds me of Aquinas talking about the universal destination of goods. So this this idea that we are stewards of it, but it's not ours to own kind of gets the conclusion from that is that we have to come up with our own ways of distributing these goods. But really, we also have to make sure that we need to keep in mind that, you know, some people might be poorer, but they still have a right to basics that they need. And so how, how do you think that that same concept, first of all, I guess maybe what your thoughts on, on this idea of universal destination, but how do you think that informs us, our, our understanding of the balance between, you know, having uh, access to sort of relatively untouched, you know, land that we can call a good, you know, that, that it's, it's good for us to be able to see these untouched parts of land um, and all that versus, you know, sort of 100% cultivation or something like that. Well, well, I see those expressions as oftentimes coming out of the fact that we've been able to transform the earth in order to become more wealthy. So when people are at their absolute subsistence level, the idea of wild animals that you want to look at or scenic views, they're worth something, but they become worth more as we become wealthier. So one of the things that's happened is from you know, around 1800, when 90% of the world lived on a dollar ninety a day or less, to today when it's around 8% that live. I mean, there's still poor people in the world, but we've reduced that number from 90% to 8%. That's pretty dramatic. That allows us to appreciate some of those unspoiled parts of this. So one of the trade-offs that we have to think about is as we try to care more for the environment, can we do it in a way that still allows there to be economic growth? Because economic growth is important for caring for poor people, people made in the image of God. So that's one of those sorts of trade-offs that we need to think about. Back to the fertilizer case, some of the problematic aspects there are not with the raising of food, but with things like, say, fertilizer runoff. And then now we're talking about a property rights issue. Does a farmer 
who puts on fertilizer, um, he, he or she may have the full right to gather the fruits of that. Uh, if it runs off, causes water pollution, causes problems in the Gulf of Mexico, well, that's because the property rights were not well enough defined. With regard to some of those sorts of things, we are coming closer to being able to use tracers. For instance, people who use atrazine uh, on corn in the Midwest, it would be perfectly feasible to say that every atrazine user has a unique, specific biological, chemical, uh, some sort of a tracer. That, yeah, that, that is bizarre. Some of the stuff that they can do with that, that's, yeah, that, that's cool too, because then you could actually attribute the property or the violation. It's like having a license plate on your car. So yeah. if you run somebody, right. you can be held accountable. And if you use atrazine and it doesn't uh, end, or end up in groundwater, no problem. If it does, then a property right, uh, an appropriate property rights regime wouldn't say that all atrazine users are at fault. We would identify that particular user and hold them responsible. And that's what a well-functioning property rights regime uh, does. But I don't want to get away from the stewardship responsibilities that we talked about, because that's that overall framework. And you, you mentioned the fact that some people see Christians as thinking that the Bible just tells us that we can use the environment in any way we want to, because it's all going to burn up someday, or you see a lot of different lines like that. <laughs> I, I read the Bible as saying we have to be responsible stewards. That ownership is a part of that, but that ownership is always under God's control, our answering to him for it. So I actually see Christianity as both empowering and constraining in terms of our involvement with the environment. So I had a question regarding your conception of a stewardship. And uh, one of the things it reminded me of is the Lockean proviso on property acquisition, where Locke says we are entitled to acquire private property insofar as we leave enough and as good for other people. And one way to read that proviso is, you know, in terms of consumption too, that we are allowed to consume things only insofar as we make sure that you know, other people and future generations are able to enjoy the fruits of, you know, the world as well. So I was wondering if you saw a lot of daylight between these two positions, or if you think that they are kind of uh, maybe like separate ways up the same mountain. And I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Well, I'm not sure what we would mean by, you know, separate ways up the same mountain, but I do, I do think that Locke, thinking about human nature and I regard Locke as a believing Christian. Some of his theological points could be argued a bit about, you know, in terms of how you would go about uh, putting all this in place. One of the primary things of Locke's thinking is universal human dignity, that uh, people are made in the image of God, and it's appropriate to be acting in that sort of a way. Remember also that once we introduce money into this state of nature that uh, Locke has us think about, that then things can be saved for the future. So it's not just, am I, as I use up my wheat today, is that taking that from somebody else that's going to be using it today? And I regard the Lockean justification of a set of institutions that encourage incentives and information, namely a system of well-defined and enforced property rights, as pretty much fit, fitting the Lockean proviso. I mean, you know, you could say uh, that people have used the earth, 
But if you look at, and if you look at that massive reduction in poverty or increase in wealth that starts in England and the Netherlands, somewhere between 1790 and 1815, that that means that caring for others has really become, along with what I would call mercy ministries, we have a set of institutions that encourage people to use the environment in a way that uh, creates wealth. And right. so that is more for other people. Yeah, because the exchange in the moment leads to wealth accumulation over time. And that's part of, I think, lock and step with lock, no pun intended. All right. So that looks like a good place to uh, wrap today, unless there's any final words. Dr. Hill, we'd like to thank you for coming on and uh, joining us today. It was a pleasure to hear your thoughts on environmental economics. We hadn't uh, hit that topic like that way, and it was, so it was great to have you on as a guest. Yes. I've got three, I've got three or four more, more hours of lecture I could give. But we'll-, <laughs> <laughs> well, that would leave time for another, another episode. So, yeah, maybe we will we'll, uh, take you up on that. That would be great. So, on behalf of the Gorton Institute here at Ottawa University, I'd like to thank you all for listening and uh, make sure to subscribe to us on your favorite podcast and check us out on our website at gortoninstitute.org. Other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks. Dave, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you.